The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington D.C. It's Friday, the 18th of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. How are things in the American capital, Emily? Uh, <laughs> they have been better, which I feel like is my answer every week. But the big news in Washington, D.C., just to move right into our moment of the week, is that on Monday, the Electoral College met and finally declared Joe Biden the winner. And so holdouts notably including Russian President Putin, and also notably including Republican senators, said, okay, yes, Joe Biden is the president-elect. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is notably telling senators, please do not, when Congress convenes to ratify the Electoral College result, please do not object, because if you do, you'll force a vote, and we will have to vote the objection down, which means that Trump will see us as being against him. So they are in this situation of their own creation, not to not to opine too much. And I would also just note that in waiting for the Electoral College to make their decision, Republican senators let weeks go by without contradicting Trump's baseless claims about the legitimacy of this election. According to a CBS poll, 82% of Trump supporters think that the election was illegitimate, roughly half think that Trump should not concede. So that's where we're at here in the United States. How's Berlin? Goodness me. Berlin is back in a new hard lockdown, which began on Wednesday, uh, the 16th of December. Germany has been previously seen as one of the sort of fairly successful countries with regards to COVID. But the last few weeks have really put paid to that. You know, I wrote about this on the New Statesman website. We'll, we'll put the link on the webpage for the podcast. But, you know, a combination of kind of, I think, complacency in the sense that Germany had done quite well in the first wave in the spring in the sense that its death rate was obviously horrific and tragic, but also quite a lot lower than other large European countries like Britain, France, Spain, Italy. The fact that it took quite a long while for Germany to bring in its new lockdown in the autumn in response to the second wave, and the fact that there was a certain amount of kind of political haggling over the details of that or political disputes about when when to accelerate the restrictions all seem to have contributed to the fact that Germany now has is experiencing its highest both infection and death rates in the whole course of the crisis. And after a lot of kind of, frankly, pretty petty disputes between Merkel, who has been generally pushing for a, a kind of more tough lockdown, and the leaders of the German federal states over the past weeks, and it was decided last Sunday to go for a full lockdown, and that came in on Wednesday. So all shops other than the most essential ones are now shut, schools are shut, 
apart from for pupils of essential workers. And yeah, it's a pretty kind of tight lockdown in the hope that the country can kind of get control of the numbers, you know, they're, they're way out of control. And the great strength of the German model earlier in the year was that it could, you know, Germany introduced test and trace quite early. And the regional health authorities were able to kind of track down those who had the virus and those who'd come into contact with them and keep them all under quarantine. And now the numbers are far beyond the level at which you can do that. And so the idea is to try and push that back down. So this week marks the 10th anniversary since a vegetable seller in Tunisia set himself on fire in an act of protest at the authorities that many say catalyzed the Arab Spring that would then follow over the subsequent months, both in Tunisia, but also around North Africa and the Middle East. And we were very pleased to have the freelance journalist Leila Faroudi write for the New Statesman this week from the town in Tunisia where that took place, Sidi Bouazid, talking to the family and neighbours of Mohamed Bouazizi, the man in question, who died a couple of a few weeks later, on memories of that time, but also how the mood around his act sums up the questions about the not very happy legacy of the Arab Spring. So, Leili, thank you very much for joining us from Tunis. Thank you for having me on. So to start off, could you just paint us a picture of what Tunisia was like in 2010 when this took place? What was the political situation? What were the social circumstances? And secondly, can you tell us a bit about Sidi Bouazid, the town in question? In what sort of setting did this take place? So 10 years ago, Tunisia was ruled by the president, Zina Labedin Ben Ali, dictator. And it was really fear reigned over the country. So people weren't able to express their opinion. There were political dissidents that were imprisoned and tortured. In addition to this, there was rampant corruption. The family of Ben Ali, in particular, the family of his wife, the Trebelsis, they kind of had a hold on the economy. And corruption was also like rampant within institutions. Yeah, so there was this sort of inequality. There was also regional inequality. So Sidi Bouzid is in the interior of the country, which has historically been marginalized compared to the coastal regions. Bouazizi wasn't the first person to set himself alight in this way. That Actually, that same year, there were, I think, three other cases, and two of them took place in a, in a coastal town there evidently weren't the same consequences. There are a few different theories as to why some people say because the the region of Sidi Bouzid was marginalized. So there's that feeling of, yeah, that solidarity that, that meant that people came out into the streets afterwards. And other people say that it's because of the, the strong family links and family appartenance that meant that things set off more in Sidi Bouzid than they would have done in another place. And, and talk us through his act itself. What drove him to set himself on fire exactly? He was selling fruit on the side of the road in Sidi Bouzid, and he was selling without a, the license that he needed to, or he was selling in a place where he wasn't allowed to sell. And this police officer, who I'm told had bothered him quite a few times that week and confiscated his scales, uh, which, which apparently she would uh, give back after being paid a bribe. And so there was this yeah, this feeling of of kind of injustice. And then on top of that, it, he was in a kind of economically struggling situation. He was supporting his family. His father passed away. So he was the one that was helping helping his family economically. And it's a 
a region where there is yeah a lot of people work in work in informal it's traditionally agricultural region but a lot of the land actually doesn't belong to the people for various reasons over time and like it's used by investors in the area so it's it's kind of a place that yeah there's this economic deprivation that means that it's difficult so i think those factors combined and and so then when this confiscation happened he went to the administration and wanted to complain about the fact that his fruits had been confiscated from him and no one saw him so actually one thing that the one of the cousins of Boazi said he said that the the administration they're like you're more likely to meet god than you are to meet someone from the administration they were kind of untouchable so it was this feeling that he tried to go and to be heard and no one would see him and so his act was was a reaction to this series of of events the other thing is that and this is something that i talk about in the piece there was an altercation between him and the the police officer that that confiscates his his goods where there are lots of different kind of versions of of what happened altercation covers everything in some versions it was a slap other people say she tried to hit him with the scales other people say they just had a verbal kind of they were insulting each other I recall you you note that actually some people think he just wanted to pretend to set himself on fire. Yeah, I mean there are sort of swirling conspiracies around around even the act itself. I think so and I think it's quite understandable especially I mean if you know someone it's probably I mean emotionally difficult to to imagine like you put yourself in in their position like that's what a lot of people said like no he he wouldn't have done that he he loved life like he wouldn't have really wanted to to do that and then and I've spoken to other people in relation to self-immolations like not Boazizi but other self-immolations in Tunisia where there is a similar people say a similar sort of thing and I think it's when you're close to someone that that does that it's quite a natural reaction and yeah but so so there are kind of all of these discussions but what I say in the piece is that actually that that ambiguity in the end it's impossible to know what was happening in in Boazizi's head at that time but the way that people talk about it says something about how they how they view his act how they view that that moment there was even an instance where i was talking to to someone who who held the opinion that he did it by accident but this was someone who was also like pro revolution and so while we were talking he started off saying he did it by accident it was a threat by the end of the conversation he was saying that it was a it was a protest it was an act of he preferred to die rather than rather than stand injustice i was just going to ask whether in certain circumstances and in certain systems it's kind of forced into being both right if what you're frustrated with like so frustrated with that you would either intentionally or or unwittingly set yourself on fire if if that's the system that you're reacting to, does the personal automatically become political, even if the person committing the act doesn't really want to be a political actor? Absolutely. And I think that that's, Boazizi's act really encapsulate that. Like his, his was a personal situation and a reaction to that, but his personal situation was an expression of the political situation. It was a result of the, of the political situation as well. From there, can you just sort of talk us through what went on to happen in Tunisia and the events that would then 
sort of spill out into the wider Arab Spring. Just sort of fill us in. For those who, you know, this was now 10 years ago, don't necessarily recall exactly what happened from then on. Bouazizi set himself on fire on the 17th of December 2010. He died, I believe, was it on January the 4th, 2011? How did things go from there? Protests spread across Tunisia, first in the interior regions, and then they eventually made it to the the main cities. Once there were mass protests across the country, Ben Ali gave a speech apologizing, saying that he, he understood the critics, that he would change. But a lot of people, they heard that speech and they said, okay, we've got him. Like, he's, he's over. And so it just kind of galvanized people even more. So the next day, there were the, the uprising continued and Ben Ali f- fled to Saudi Arabia. So after... Tunisia, the uprisings spread across the region. So you had in Egypt, there were anti-government protests that led to the president, Hosni Mubarak, the step down. Then you also had in Libya, Gaddafi was um, captured and killed by rebels. In Yemen, the president stepped down. Syria, you had the mass uprisings, but Bashar al-Assad, he gave a speech saying that he was going to stay, resist, stand, stand in place, which he did and used all means to, to do so. And now, 10 years on, I mean, it sounds like part of the reason that people are going back to the origin story of the revolution, at least in Tunisia, and, and rethinking it and saying, you know, what was this and what was it for is that there's still political frustration in the country. Could you tell us a bit about the political situation there today? I think one thing to say is that the the revolution in Tunisia marked the end of a very dark era and really the fear that that reigned at that time is something that it's not to be taken for granted like being able to to live without that I mean I cannot imagine it speaking to speaking to people who describe what it was to to live with that fear so to not live without that I think is it's not, it's not a small thing. Yeah, right? the fact that that kind of fear is is not there anymore. That's not that's not nothing, and we shouldn't make it sound like it's nothing. Exactly, and I think as well that even like I saw a figure, a survey come out uh, yesterday saying that sixty seven percent of Tunisians think that the situation is worse than it was before the revolution, and like you see something like that, and the, and and I think that there are a few things to unpack there because I, I mean a lot of people I've heard a lot of people say that but then if, if you then ask them well was it better under Ben Ali or does that mean that, that you regret the revolution happened like th- that's not the necessary necessarily the conclusion like I was talking to someone who who works in the kind of jewelry market place in the Medina who was talking about the effect of this on on gold and how uh, people are selling their gold in order to be able to afford to pay rent, to pay for electricity, to send their kids to a private hospital because the public services are terrible. So we were talking about, yeah, this awful situation. And obviously that has an effect on the jewelers. This guy's an artisan jeweler. But then at the end of it, after saying all of that and saying that, yes, the situation is worse now than it was before, he'll say, um, he says, but we can speak and freedom is better than gold. And that's not uncommon to to hear to hear that, and also to, to hear that people, yeah, seeing things in a longer view, like saying that that like we rose up at that time, and this is a a revolution, is something that's going to that's going to continue. 
wherever you are in the world. If you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Tunisia is often referred to as the one semi-success story of the Arab Spring in that it is now somewhat democratic. Mm. You know, you can speak your mind fairly freely. It does, you know, if you look at these rankings of countries by the quality of their democracy, Tunisia almost always comes out top among the Arab countries. And I mean, I just wondered, how does it feel there? You know, does it, does, does it feel like a success story the last 10 years? Because from everything I read and from what you've just said now, I do wonder if clearly there's, there's still more work to be done. And clearly Tunisia still has a kind of a way to go until it's a fully developed liberal democracy. But I mean, is there a sense there that, that we were the country that, that made it out of all of these Arab countries that experienced these revolts 10 years ago, that we were the ones who came out with something like a, a decent pluralist democratic system? I would probably avoid the phrase success story. Right. But what can be said is that Tunisia, people are able to vote for their leaders. The elections are are free and fair. In the last elections, they voted in people that were completely outside of the system, that were, it was kind of a, a protest vote against the politicians that had governed until that point. And people can speak their mind. I mean, I think that the situation before Ben Ali wasn't good. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a revolution. And the the demands of the uprising were also very social and economic, which is, as well as political. So the social and economic problems that exist now, they did exist before, but no one could complain in the same way as they do now, nor could they criticize their their leaders, the politicians. So I think from that point of view, yeah, there, there definitely is that, that freedom here. Whether this democracy has led to an improvement in the living conditions is a different thing. So being able to to vote for your leaders, in this case, it hasn't led to a programme for Tunisia that's improved the economy, that's like reduced unemployment, that's tackled the problems of, of regional inequality that still exists. I have a last question for you from, from my end, at least, which is, you know, you're speaking about there's there's political reform and there's economic reform. To what extent does the enduring success of the political reform depend on getting the economic reform right? If there's no improvement in the economic situation, then there's a risk of a, a disillusionment with the with the political structure that's in place, with the the idea of of democracy. Like that's a risk. I mean, one of the politicians that's gaining ground in Tunisia is Abiy Moussi, who's a former Ben Ali senior official, who receives very friendly media coverage from kind of the UAE and Saudi, and she's calling for a return to the harsher methods of the of the past. And I think that her gaining ground, and and she uses a lot of the a lot of her rhetoric is also around how things are worse now than they than they were before, how the the price of meat is now out of reach for for a normal person. Alongside saying that we need a stronger a stronger state, stronger security. So I think that if you don't get the, if there aren't uh, solutions for the economic problems, then there is a risk that people look towards a, a model like that. I'd like to ask about why Tunisia might have been the one that, if success story is not the right term, and I totally accept that judgment, 
why it's the country that's come out with something like a democratic or a sort of an imperfect democratic system. Were the factors there from the start, from 17th of December 2010, from which we could have deduced Tunisia will be the country that would come out of this okay when, you know, in Libya, it would be a bloodbath. In Syria, it would be a bloodbath. In Egypt, it would lead to a dictatorship and so forth. What do you think might be distinct about Tunisia? I think, I mean, every country has its own historical and cultural specificities. So in Tunisia, among the reasons might be that, well, for one, the military is weak. So there isn't the likelihood of a military coup is less. You also have, if you think of ethnic and religious divisions, you don't have the same divisions between like Sunni Shia or or like tribal affiliations. Those are less divisive in Tunisia compared to compared to in other places. Also you have less foreign intervention from other powers in the like in the West, Russia, that are getting involved in in conflicts in Tunisia. Also, you had the, whereas in, I think, the the trajectory of, of the political party, how the political parties dealt with things in Tunisia was different to, say, in in Egypt. In Tunisia, the, the Islamist party, Inata, wanted to share power and wanted to make compromises in a way that would appease the, the secular sections of, of society. Just, just on that, an argument that I've heard about why the Arab Spring, particularly beyond Tunisia, was such a, a flop, is that the countries where this took place didn't, at that point in 2010-11, have sufficiently developed civil society and civil society organizations to sort of sustain a movement into a kind of transformation into democracy. What, what, what's your, your view on that? I mean, I think, I think you're in a good place to, to rule on that as someone in the country that came through this relatively well. Do you think that Tunisia had those factors where other North African and Middle Eastern countries didn't? Well, you have the, so the union, the UGTT was one of the main actors in accompanying Tunisia's democratic transition. That's a trade union. Yeah, that's a national trade union. Right. But yeah, kind of when it was um, at times rocky, there was this um, conflict between like Islamist secularists, secularists. They broke at that time, drove the country towards national dialogue when there were yeah, a discussion that, that looked at how can we write a constitution that's going to be inclusive of, of everyone, how to write. So they, they have like quite a ambiguous first line of the, of the constitution in a way that satisfies both like secular and, and Islamist parts mm-hmm. of society. And yeah, and I think as well, like if you look now, with, if we're talking about civil society, civil society is still strong in protesting when there are certain laws being proposed that threaten democracy. So like you had earlier this year, there was a, a police reform proposal that would have basically granted the police impunity and removed the requirement of them to attend, for example, transitional justice trials. And there was a big mobilization to combat that and which resulted in the in the draft proposal being withdrawn. So I think, yeah, that's an example of, of Tunisia's civil society still playing an important role. Interesting. That's actually a great point to transition into our next segment. So with that, 
it is time for a section that our colleagues at the main New Statesman podcast and that we ourselves like to call... You Ask Us. Very good, Jeremy. Our question this week is, could or should the West have done more to support the Arab Spring? As you are our guest and also expert, Lily, we will we will start with you. So I think when you have, for example, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, last month giving a Légion d'honneur to Sisi, the president of Egypt, who imprisons more political dissidents and journalists than any other country in the region, but is also strategically useful for France in regional conflicts like Libya. You also have the West is implicated in fueling conflicts, proxy wars that are tearing countries in the region apart, like in Yemen, in Syria, Libya. So I don't know what more the West should have done, but they have not been absent in all of this. Then for Tunisia, there were a lot of funds that were given from the EU, for example, to support the democratic transition. So like to reform the media, to, to help develop a, a free press, to for tech, for different NGO projects, etc. But then, for example, with the media, the, this money was more or less wasted because it was either implemented badly, misdirected, distributed in a corrupt way. It was also executed by experts from outside who didn't necessarily understand what they were dealing with. And if we're talking about European priorities as regards Tunisia, we can also see how funding was at the beginning of just after 2011 directed more towards democratic transitions, supporting democratic institutions. It then shifted more to security responses for migration, combating terrorism, which so those became the overwhelming priority at the expense of other projects. A last thing, I think the major challenge in Tunisia right now is economic. And as we discussed earlier, the economic situation is very linked to the political situation. And there are free trade agreements like the DCFTA with Europe that disadvantage Tunisian businesses while benefiting European ones and the large export companies held by a small Tunisian elite. So like I saw a figure in a study that projected this deal would benefit 83% of EU small and medium-sized enterprises, while only 3% of Tunisian ones. So I think that if we're thinking of how Europe or the West can, can support countries, I think these are some issues to look at. I mean, as you say, it's not like the West is absent, but how, at least speaking for my own country, right? How do you say, well, we're encouraging civil society and also back a Saudi-led coalition in a devastating war in Yemen? So before before we move on to our final segment, I, I have one last question on this, which is, so Tunisia does not recognize Israel. Obviously, in this last year of the Trump administration, there's been a big push to, I guess, change formally, if not informally, some countries in the region's relationship with Israel. Do you think that Tunisia will will move in that direction or will stay firmly rooted where it is? So I think Tunisia will stay firmly rooted where it is. The current president, Kais Saied, Palestine was one of the main causes that he spoke about during his election campaign. After he was elected, the Palestinian flag was painted across the country. And in the the way that Tunisian politics works, it's the president that's in charge of foreign policy. And after, and I mean, after the news about Morocco normalizing relations with with Israel, there was 
I mean, that was not well received in Tunisia. There was also recently a draft law was actually proposed on criminalizing normalization. So that's just to, sh- to kind of show the political, like the political feeling amongst politicians here. It doesn't seem like that's gonna that's gonna happen anytime soon. Okay, so that brings us to us our last segment, which is to look ahead to the next week. Lily, as you are our guest, why don't you go first? What will you be looking out for in the world in the next seven days? So actually, I mean, we were just talking about Morocco and Israel, or the Israel question. I am looking forward on Monday. There is going to be a UN Security Council meeting to discuss the conflict in Western Sahara. So after Trump recognized Morocco's sovereignty over this territory in return for Morocco normalizing relations with Israel. So it'll be interesting to see, yeah, what's discussed, this referendum that was apparently supposed to happen that would give people from Western Sahara the ability to vote on whether they want to be independent from Morocco or not. Meanwhile, Morocco wants to make official that Western Sahara is an autonomous region in the country. So I'm interested to see what happens there. And Emily, what will you be looking out for? I know I've mentioned this on on the pod before, but I do think it's an, an important story and that there's a new development. So as, as we've mentioned before, there are currently protests by India's farmers against intended reforms by the national government. Basically, Modi's reforms would, would he and the BJP say, would bring investment into the farm sector. But India's farmers, or many of them, uh, have been protesting near New Delhi to say that this is going to hurt them and make them just completely dependent on the whims of of large corporations. Now, many of the farmers come from the state of Punjab, which has a large Sikh population. And so the Sikh diaspora around the world has also been getting involved in this issue, rallying, protesting near, near government buildings. And I think that it is worth watching not only how the protests develop, but also whether the involvement of the diaspora changes anything. I also think it's worth noting that one of the pro-government arguments is, well, you know, Prime Minister Modi, he doesn't back down. He does what needs to be done. He takes big risks. Just look at demonetization. But his critics say, okay, but demonetization was an economic disaster. Why would you hold that up as as the example that proves that this is going to go well for anybody? So a, a significant story with a new development and one that I will continue to watch. And Jeremy, what will you be keeping an eye on in the next week? Well, thank you for that, Emily. And also for listeners, um, you will be able to read Emily's take on Narendra Modi's 2020, along with our short assessments of how each of the major world leaders have done in the past 12 months uh, on the New Statesman website, newstatesman.com, next week as we record this, so the week of the 21st or indeed the week of Christmas in much of the world. I will be looking out for on Monday, the 21st of December, the European Medical Agency is going to approve the BioNTech vaccine, which has already been approved in the UK, Canada and the US, the first widely approved vaccine, certainly in the West. And it comes after some pressure, I have to say, particularly from here in Germany, you know, there's been a, people have noticed here that the UK and the US and Canada have started vaccinating people while the European Union's agency hasn't yet even authorize the vaccine. Now, that's basically a question of the EU wanting to kind of have a common position. It's not obligatory. People have 
claimed this was something that Britain would have been forced to do if it had stayed in the EU. It's not the case. You can opt out of this. But it's been a general view that the EU should kind of, you know, take a composition on vaccines. But there's been a lot of pressure for the EMA to get its act together and approve this vaccine and some criticism, actually, of it for taking so long. The Bild Zeitung, the main German tabloid, has been publishing photos of the the lights off in the EMA building at night to show that they're not working through the night as they said they would to approve the vaccine. But I think it kind of it sums up this this sense in Europe and around the world that, you know, we the vaccine is the the gate to freedom. And I think in particular, I think in in the in the week of the festive holidays in which Europe's going to be celebrating Christmas, I think, you know, a lot of governments have had to walk a delicate line between kind of giving people the freedom to visit family and friends for the Christmas holidays, but also hold down or, or push down a kind of pretty dramatically rising curve in, in with regards to COVID, you know, how delicate the situation is and how desperate people are to move on from it. So definitely worth watching that. All that remains is for us to say a big thank you to Lely Farudi in Tunis for joining us. Thank you very much, Lely. Thank you so much for having me on. And we will put Lely's article from Sidi Bouazid on the webpage for this podcast, which you'll be able to find along with the archive of our World Review podcast over the course of this year at our website, newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review, tell your friends and sworn enemies about it. And also a new ask from us, you can review it, you can like it, and you can subscribe. And that way you will automatically hear next week's episode where Jeremy and I do our 2020 roundup with surprises. <laughs> Jeremy's so surprised he doesn't even know what it's going to be yet. I, yeah, I didn't know we were going to have surprises. That's <laughs> terrifying. Anyway... A quick reminder that we won't have a episode next week, but we will be back, as Emily says, shortly before the new year with our thoughts on 2020. In the meantime, keep an eye on our review of the world leaders in 2020 and our review of the year overall in world affairs on the New Statesman International homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you so much for listening. Merry Christmas, happy belated Hanukkah, happy holidays, and until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all 
wrong. What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 